Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and my colleague, Paul Rickard, has gone on holidays early or is it late? Oh, well, he's not here ahead of a three-week break skiing and carrying on in Europe. I don't know how he gets away with that kind of thing. Anyway, on today's show, I catch up with the co-founder of Zip Money, Peter Gray. Zip, along with Afterpay, are redefining retail in this country. And so I want to understand what the potential is for the company that looks to be really in a great growth space. And then I'll catch up with AMP Capital's Chief Economist, Shane Oliver, and we'll try to work out if we should be afraid of house price collapses, interest rate cuts, and a recession, as well as a stock market crash. And I'm really hoping that he doesn't deliver any really bad news. I'm in the will-be-okay camp, but there are certainly Armageddon doomsday merchants out there telling us, and particularly telling me, that we'll all be ruined. So without any further ado, let's welcome Peter Gray, co-founder and chief operating officer of Zip Money. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, just tell us about the history of the company for people who don't know much about Zipco. So uh, thanks, Peter. I, I, I met Larry Diamond, the uh, other co-founder of Zip, uh, almost randomly in December 2012. And uh, Larry and I identified an opportunity to disrupt the world of uh, credit cards and retail finance. So effectively, for the next six months, we we mapped out a future for Zip. We met regularly at the Commodore Hotel at North Sydney, which was uh, equidistant from both our, our houses. And uh, we, we founded the opportunity, uh, the, the company, in, in June 2013. And uh, I guess it was founded on the premise that we provide consumers with a, with a better and fairer alternative to credit cards and to use technology to consume significant amounts of data to provide better decisions and experiences for those customers. What did you think was the main thing wrong with credit cards and particularly how they interacted with millennials because they're the ones who really liked your product at this point in time. You might tell me even old so-and-sos are liking it as well and they probably are but they're the ones the first to jump on board with you guys. What was the, the, the great injustice you think that credit cards were doing to, to younger borrowers? So I think we thought the credit card model was fundamentally broken for a, different, a number of different reasons. Yeah. Um, really, uh, the product construct and the, the way the whole model re- relies on a significant amount of interest uh, balances to revolve and attract interest. Yeah. So, and you know, big interest too, high big, interest rates. Very high interest rates. Uh, two-thirds of all credit card balances, they're attracting interest, uh, which, which we believe, uh, you know, what wasn't the best alternative. Yeah. Uh, even the product construct with regard to minimum repayments, we, we thought the way the minimum repayments were, stru- were constructed so that the minimum repayment might take the, the customer anywhere from 12 to 25 years to, re- to repay the balance wasn't particularly useful. Mm. There was no technology injected into any sign-up process to provide a great consumer experience. There was, I think, I, I had a credit limit increase at Westpac at the time and I had to actually fax an application through mm. and I was an existing customer with that bank. So mm. sort of fundamentally broken. We also identified that the, the banks didn't have 
a relationship or the ability to attract uh, what would be described as a millennial cohort of customers. So other than their savings account, which they might have established when they were six, they actually had no relationship with this cohort of, of customers. So where we're able to piggyback off the back of our, our sort of retail partners to acquire these millennials, the banks actually had no way to penetrate that, that sector. Okay, well, I think anyone listening to this knows how credit cards work. People basically sign up, they get the debt, they got to pay it back. Yeah, often very high interest rates because people don't shop around to try and find the lowest one. Um, so how is yours different? How does Zip work? So Zip, we currently offer two products. Uh, the Zip Pay product, we've removed the concept of interest totally from the Zip Pay product. Mm. It supports everyday spend purchases up to $1,000. Okay. Uh, we also offer the Zip Money product for, for limits anywhere up to $30,000. With the, uh, the Zip Money product, there's a, a large or healthy interest-free period anywhere from 6, 12 to 24 months, depending on where the customer makes the purchase. Okay. And, and what kind of interest rate applies after you know, the interest-free period? Um, for, for any balance on the Zip Money product after the interest-free period, it's at 19%, so sort of mid-range credit card rate. Okay, right, yeah. All right, so... Uh, let's go on. The, the one I think that's super popular is the Zip Pay. Correct. And that's a $1,000 limit and it's everyday spending and whatever. Explain exactly how that works for my uninitiated out there. So customers uh, sign up. It could be either be a point of sale or, or direct to Zip. They mm-hmm. complete uh, a reasonably streamlined application process and we actually consume huge amounts of data at the point of application to actually make a decision as to the customer's credit worthiness. Mm. They would be assigned a limit of 350, 500 or $1,000, depending on the suitability uh, of the customer. Uh, we're also declining quite a few applications at that time. Once the customer has a limit, uh, they're able to make um, as many purchases as they like under that limit. The uh, repayments are aggregated and the customer can set the repayment cycle to suit their budget or lifestyle, so giving mm. them great points of flexibility. So if someone had a 1,000 limit, that still is the total amount they could they could do? Correct. Uh, but they could do... 300s, 200s, and it adds up to, to 1,000. Uh, ultimately, when they clear part of that balance, they can then push it back up. Exactly right. So as a working, it's like a, a working cash balance for somebody. Uh, and if they pay it back in the shortest period of time, what is the, the cost? So let's imagine someone goes on it and goes to 1,000 and they pay it back in the minimum amount of time. What's, what's the cost? So if the customer clears the purchase balance in up to 60 days, there's zero cost. Yeah. Um, should they choose yeah, to... Realize the really well-processed young people just think this is just too easy. Well, I think millennials uh, don't get enough credit for how financially savvy they are. They certainly understand the difference between a good deal and a bad deal. And, um, you know, that's demonstrated. uh, We also have a business um, called Pocketbook, which is a personal finance management app um, with over 500,000 users. And the millennials on that side of the business are very savvy on budgeting um, and sort of how how they understand their own finances. So I I think typically they uh, they get a a, a worse rap than they're they're due. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But... What we see is that the customers do regularly sign into their app to set their repayment cycle to a suit their, their sort of lifestyle, but also to have the fee waived. Okay, so your your point of difference with you. Let's be open. My people listen to this. They're smart. They know Afterpay and Zip are fighting it out. What's the difference between both you two? So we offer an account-based concept. So um, under our limit, customers can make as many purchases as they like and the repayments are actually aggregated so that you sort of one contractual repayment required mm. each month. Um, Afterpay is a transaction-based model where there's a sort of a, less, uh, a, a, a more rigid repayment attached to each transaction. So they could have multiple repayments um, debited through their, to their account each month. Mm. I think the other difference is um, 
we, we're doing full underwriting at point of sale or, or point of application, I should say. So we're doing ID checks, credit checks and banking checks to in, ensure that our products are, are, are more suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so our customer is probably slightly older. Um, the average order value uh, or purchase value under our line of credit is probably slightly higher. Yeah. Um, we are talking earlier and you are saying that even like a, a pool maker, Norellan was Norellan Pools? Yeah, Norellan Pools. So a person wants a pool... Uh, instantaneously and they're waiting for the Christmas bonus, they can actually get the pool made before Christmas based on using your zip well, money. It'd be a fair Christmas bonus, I think, for, for a pool. But well, uh, wasn't, wasn't, there, wasn't there a Chevy Chase film where the, the Christmas Chevy Chase one, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, all based on, on a Christmas bonus? Yeah, that's... <laughs> Swing pool they were going for. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I think, um, you know, with, with the zip money product and the zip pay, we, we sort of... Sim- are able to penetrate a, a wide variety of industry verticals mm. and, and facilitate purchases up to 30,000. So we do have a very strong penetration into home improvement. Mm. Uh, if you want some solar panels uh, for your roof, you know, go to Solar Heart and get mm. you know, 60 months interest free um, for, the, for the larger ticket items. So, and uh, all the way down to, to Bunnings, if you need a new hammer, mm. uh, get into Bunnings and uh, zip it. Okay, regulatory threats. Um, do you worry that government might come down? hard on you guys in, in one specific... All of your areas have no, you know, uh, alarm bells going off, but, but are there any that you might worry about that um, governments or uh, an aspirational Labor Party wanting to become government might jump on you guys and say, oh, we're going to change that? Yeah, so I think uh, recently ASIC released a report which showed over 2 million consumers are adopting these buy-now-pay-later solutions. Yeah. Um, typically, um, in, in disruptive markets, uh, the regulator... Uh, is probably lags behind, and I, I think we we, we genuinely support um, increased regulation to ensure consumer protection mm-hmm. um, and a level playing field for all the operators in the space. Uh, we're already really well placed for increased, uh, you know, regulatory obligation in the fact that we, we're doing ID checks, we're doing credit checks, and we're doing banking and income checks uh, for our regulated uh, Zip Money products. So we, we fully support uh, increased standards um, across the industry. Mm. Um- you, you talked about customers earlier, but you've got two customers, haven't you? One is the, the consumer, but also the merchants effectively customers too, aren't they? Absolutely. So currently we, we're accepted at over 12,000 retail locations and, mm-hmm. and we offer the retailer a, a broad set of benefits that might not necessarily apply to other payment methods they accept mm-hmm. um, and is, is core to the uh, success of the ZIP model. We By partnering with retailers, we have a very cheap customer cost of acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we're able to acquire customers through, through their network um, and then... The more, the more, obviously, the network effect, the more retailers we have, the more places our consumers can use our products. Um, I'm sure you've made an assessment on how savvy the retailers are out there about your product because that's going to be very important for your growth. The, the more retailers think about you guys and say, gee, I'm, I'm mad not to have them at least there as an, as a, an alternative. How many retailers are there out there? You've got 12,000. It means... It, it suggests to me you've got a lot of potential for growth if you can explain the, the value of your proposition. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have, as touched on, ambitions to disrupt the credit card mm. uh, sector or the credit card model. So we believe and have ambitions to be accepted anywhere that a card could be uh, accepted for payment. Um, there's over 200,000 SMB um, part, uh, retailers in Australia, both mm. online and in-store, and obviously there's the, the larger enterprise um sort of sector of the market and I guess our, our, our technology and our solution is, is designed to be able to easily integrate and be offered at all of those points of presence. Okay, so how are you marketing to that group? 
So we apart from showing up to something like this. Well, we, we obviously have a sales team that yeah. sort of uh, you know work with uh, enterprise partners. We obviously now that we've reached the scale, we do with this consumer led demand. Um, mm. You know, our customers asking retailers, you know, why isn't Zip accepted here? Yeah. Um, so we've really passed that that important point where we're getting a lot of inbound um, sort of interest from uh, very large players. Mm, okay. Um, what about funding? Because you know, it's all very well to have. A lot of people wanting to uh, access your the services, but funding must be critically important to the growth of your company. Yeah, funding is obviously uh, a necessary part of the business. We mm. wanted to scale. It was was very challenging in the early days, sort of funding funding the uh, the customer purchases. Uh, we currently uh, have a, an off-balance sheet uh, warehouse with uh, National Australia Bank as the senior note holder in that facility, which which is scalable uh, up to seven hundred million. We, we're sort of looking That's at good. solutions. It's uh, at a growth rates. It won't last that long. So uh, mm. it's a it's it's a daily and weekly focus. Um, you know, funding this 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 growing uh, business that we have. Mm. Competition threats. Do you? Yeah, obviously you're fighting out with Afterpay, who I presume started ahead of you guys, did they, or around the same time? It was really about the same time. Um, They, we we sort of went straight to the regulated product for larger items and they were sort of heavily focused on on the fashion sector and and the utility their product provides in that sector and obviously they've grown very rapidly. Yeah, I taught Anthony Eisen (laughs) many years ago. Um, So, but what about overseas? Are they doing this overseas or is this a, a quite a unique thing that's come out of Australia? So uh, Klarna has obviously made a, a very successful entree into, into Europe and this mm. uh, buy now, pay later or a pay later option. Mm. Um, obviously America is, is, is a reasonably hot sort of space um, at the moment after pay has entered in, mm. into the market in America. A little bit more competition, there's a bit more disparate sort of credit legislation on a, on a state-based system, so there are different challenges. Obviously, the size of the prize is, is pretty big in those yeah. sorts of markets. Yeah. Um, currently, we are really focused on Australia. The ambitions to be uh, anywhere a card payment is processed is probably uh, a sufficient opportunity for us. Yeah, and so yeah, if you had to look at your opportunities going forward, what are the, the easy opportunities that you think are going to materialise over 2019? Because I'm sure I've got people listening here who are thinking, hmm, better check out their share price if this guy's got potential. Well, and I, of course, this is no advice. I'm not giving advice to people. But obviously, the, the opportunities are going to be very important to ultimately the revenue you bring in, the profits you make, and ultimately the share price. Yeah, so we believe we're only on the very early stages of our journey in sort of penetrating um, mm. the Australian market. We're sort of run rating at over a billion dollars in transactional volume. Currently, we have over one million sort of active account holders. We we, we believe the opportunity is significantly bigger. Uh, we, we believe we're sort of penetrating at less than 1% of the market opportunity in terms of everywhere that uh, consumers are spending. So we certainly have ambitions to broaden the acceptance um, in terms of the, the retailers and the channels that we're mm. playing in. Um, we might do some, some fine-tuning on the product. We have a closed-loop solution. Many of our partners are offering uh, transactions to small businesses, so there's an opportunity perhaps for, for SME lending mm. uh, to sort of uh, utilise the technology and the decisioning platform that we've made. So we, we it's onwards and upwards in terms of the momentum that we've, we've built to the close of 2018. Okay, so there's the opportunities. So you are the chief operating officer, so I, I reckon occasionally you think about what are our potential threats? What are the potential threats? Well, I think uh, largely ourselves failing to execute on the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, the comp- competition doesn't you know, keep me awake at night. Obviously, the, the more broadly speaking, you want to understand the regulatory environment and any changes there and, mm-hmm. and the funding question that, that, that you talked on earlier, yeah. uh, sort of front and centre. Mm, okay. Well, mate, well, good luck with it. Uh, we always like to... Um, 
uh, shine the spotlight on the Aussies uh, having a real, real crack and you guys are having a real crack and I hope it goes well. Thanks for joining us on this Twister Show. Thank you very much. It's time for a break. We'll be back in a moment. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And don't forget, whenever we talk about Switzer Home Loans, we always talk about our headline rate, 3.89%, but it's exactly the same as the comparison rate because there are no added fees or charges. So some, some lenders will give you a really great sounding headline rate, but when you add in the fees, the comparison rate's higher. So always remember that. Now, our next guest is the Chief Economist at AMP Capital, Shane Oliver. And I really want him to, in a sense, road test all those doomsday merchants claims out there that we're heading for stock market collapses, house price collapses, recessions and whatever. And I think Shane's the right well-balanced economist to give us a pretty objective assessment. So without any further ado, welcome Shane Oliver to The Switzer Show. Thanks for having me on the program. I've been dying to have you on the program, Shane, and it's it's great to have you uh, here offering your sensible views on all the things that people care about. Let's start off with um, global. Let's go global first. the likelihood of a 2019 stock market crash. What do you reckon? Uh, I'd say low. You never rule these things out because all things are possible and the track record of timing these things is uh, incredibly difficult, despite the the pessimists saying that uh, they always get it right. People have been telling me there's going to be a crash forever, but most of the time it doesn't happen, but I, I can't totally rule it out, but I I'd say the probability is it's certainly less than 50%. Why, why do I say that? Firstly, I don't think we're going to have a, um, a global recession. If you look back historically, the really bad bear market, you know, where you come down 20%, which America up until Christmas Eve did, and then it's had a bit of a bounce since then, but a year later you're down another 20%. So the really bad falls when you come down 20%, year later you're down another 20% or 30%, like the GFC, hmm. the tech wreck. Uh, mid-70s, those sorts of events, they've been associated with US or global recession, and certainly in Australia, either a recession in Australia or a recession in the US. And I just can't see that. I think US growth will slow down as the impact of their tax cuts wears off. But the conditions aren't in place for a recession. They haven't raised interest rates enough. Uh, Monetary policy is not tight enough generally, depending on how you look at it, or whichever way you look at it. Uh, they haven't had the normal excesses that precede recession, like an overinvestment in housing or an overinvestment in IT. Debt growth generally has been relatively modest. Yes, there's issues around President Trump, um, obviously the China-US trade dispute and so on. But by the same token, this is the year before the next presidential election, believe it or not, in the US. It's gone pretty fast. One thing Donald Trump wants to do is get re-elected in 2020. And he's not going to do that. That's not going to happen if he allows the US economy to slide into recession. So I think he has to find a solution 
to these issues such as the US-China trade disputes and also the shutdown that the US uh, government's currently in at the moment. So my feeling is that, that the economic environment is not supportive of a major share market collapse. Likewise, when you look at valuations around the world and our measures, US shares were expensive, but they're now back at fair value once you allow for earnings growth and uh, bond yields and so on. But other share markets are actually quite cheap. Emerging mm-hmm. markets, Chinese shares, Australian shares, European shares, Japanese shares, they're all in cheap territory having had those that fall through last year. So we're certainly not expensive. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, I can't rule out a crash, but I don't think we're in the environment yeah. where um, we're going into a major bear market. Now, what about Europe? On. What about Europe and this talk that Germany could be heading into recession? That was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? It, it could be. It, it's always possible with Europe that they might have a soft patch uh, through the December quarter. The industrial production numbers, which have come out of Europe, have been pretty weak. Um, I, I, it's possible. I, I can't rule that out, but I don't think we'll see two quarters of negative growth. Mm. And I do think the European Central Bank will pretty soon jump back in with more monetary stimulus. I know they've ended quantitative easing a bit prematurely in my view, but I think they'll be undertaking um, cheap financing for banks, what they technically call Latrobe, le- long-term refinancing operations for the mm. banks. So it's basically where they say to the banks, you know, if you want to get cheap money, um, bring your truck up to the ECB and we'll give you some. <laughs> uh, they've got to pay it back at some point in time, but they have successfully used that in the last last few years, so I think they'll do another round of that. And more broadly, uh, these falls in share markets, the uncertainty that they've brought with them, that is starting to attract the attention of global policy makers, including the Fed. The Fed um, you know, was intent on continuing to raise interest rates. Now it's, it's expressing doubts about that. There's increasing signs that the Fed will, will go on hold regarding interest rates uh, through much of this year, given the recent comments from the Fed. So I, I think that policymakers will probably also hit the pause button and in some cases will actually start easing, notably the Europeans and also the Chinese. Okay, let's go to the local growth outlook. Um, we, we kind of were hoping and, and looked like there for a while that we could grow around 3.5% as the Reserve Bank and Treasury were kind of predicting, but the last number we got for September quarter wasn't great. Have you downgraded your view on how fast the Aussie economy will grow in 2019? We haven't downgraded our view. We we were around 2.7, 2.8%, and Mm. we've stuck to that view. Uh, I was never as optimistic as the Reserve Bank was because I was a bit more concerned about the housing downturn adversely impacting economic growth. And therefore, I thought that growth would settle back into that range around 25 to 3% rather than, than continue to hold up. And of course, with the September quarter numbers, it did slide back down. And uh, I think it's probably going to continue around that pace. But on the one hand, you could argue, well, housing is slowing down. Um, I, I wouldn't exaggerate the impact of the housing construction cycle on the Australian economy. It will be a downer that, on my calculations. And even in past cycles, it's probably going to detract only about 0.4 percentage points from economic growth this year. Obviously, there'll be a wealth effect as house prices continue to slide in Sydney and Melbourne, but the calculations I've done suggest that might be somewhere between 0.5 and 1%. So you end up with a, um, a drag on growth on the economy from a declining housing cycle, both the direct impact of housing obstruction and the indirect impact on consumer spending via a wealth effect 
of about 1 to 1.5 percentage points, mm. which sounds big, but just bear in mind that mining investment has been falling for the last five years, and that's been detracting um, up to two percentage points from economic growth over the last few years, and yet we've managed to do okay. Mm. And the good news is that the drag from mining investment is coming to an end, just at the time we're going to get a bit of a drag from the housing cycle. So yes, housing will be a drag, but mining investment will will uh, the, 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 the negative there will gradually fade at the same time that non-mining investment is picking up, and we've got very strong infrastructure um, spending going on as well. So. I can see why people are worried about growth, um, but by the same token, I think there's other things which will offset some of the, the drag from housing and keep the Aussie economy growing at an OK rate. Mm. Well, you, you, you jumped on house prices, and I'm going to jump back on them as well. Um, and I know that you were once a, a 10 to 15% drop guy, but you're now, you're now more 15 to 20? Yeah, we revised our uh, view on Sydney and Melbourne back in October mm. to have a 20% top-to-bottom fall. Um, is that, wor- is that your worst-case scenario, Shane, 20%? Oh, no, that's the base case. Okay, base case. Um, but, yeah, but you've, got to, you've got to note that we've already seen Sydney prices fall almost 11%, and mm. Melbourne prices are off 7%. So I'm saying 20% top-to-bottom, so Sydney is almost half, or, well, it's probably halfway through, yeah. and Melbourne a little bit less than halfway through. So... This year, I'm watching for price falls of around another 10% in Sydney and Melbourne. But the other cities never had a boom. And don't forget, this is 60% of Australia. So so Melbourne and Sydney are 40% of Australia. Despite what you and I think, everyone doesn't live in Sydney and Melbourne. People live in other places. (laughs) So we've got to allow for that. Look, Shane, people watch my TV show right around the country, so I know there are other cities. But go on. (laughs) Yeah, they do. But a lot of uh, commentators, not you and not me, a lot of mm. commentators talk as if Sydney and Melbourne is the only thing going on. Yeah. And a lot of the media will give that impression. If you're sitting in Brisbane, if you're sitting in Adelaide, you hear talk about a housing bust, and you're wondering what happened. Yeah. Uh, Those cities never even had a housing boom. So that's the key point here, mm. that these other cities, Canberra, Adelaide, Brisbane, never had a housing boom, so they're not going to have a housing bust. And uh, Darwin and Perth, have been suffering for years anyway as the mining investment boom unwound and that affected those cities. So you've got 60% of oh, the rest of Australia in reasonable shape and yes, they will be affected by the tightening in credit conditions, um, which probably keeps their, their property markets relatively subdued, but they're not going to have the weakness that Sydney and Melbourne are having. So if you, if you look at it on a national average basis, we're probably looking at prices coming off around 5 or 6% mm. this year, but that's, that's all... Okay. Mainly Sydney and Melbourne. Well, you know, uh, re- recently I've been picked on by tweeting trolls because I just keep can't believe that anyone would believe that we'll see a 40% fall in house prices, uh, which some experts have put out there. And when I kind of say, well, e- even experts like Shane Oliver are only talking probably 20% for Sydney and Melbourne, um, they say, oh, but look at Ireland. Look at the USA. They, they give me all these countries, particularly Ireland. I, I wonder, is Australia's real estate experience equally com- comparable to Ireland? Well, no, it's not. Yeah, no, no it's, so. it's definitely not. And it's not comparable to the US prior to the GFC either. 
those countries saw a horrendous deterioration in lending standards. Of course, Ireland uh, had a bit of a boom going on because it had very low corporate tax rates relative to the rest of Europe. So a lot of business flocked into Ireland, as it did into Spain and other parts of Europe at the time, um, only, only to see that business all reverse and go back the other way as soon as the GFC hit. Australia hasn't seen that sort of situation. Um, the Yes, you could say there was deterioration in lending standards to the extent that uh, um, non-interest, uh, interest-only loans took off, and that was uh, more than 40% of lending up until three or four years ago. So that was a bit of a concern. But money was lent to people who did have jobs. You know, we didn't have the US-style ninja loans mm. where money was going to people who had no income, no job, no asset. We don't have jingle mail if you borrow some money in Australia and the value of your house falls below the value of your debt, you can't just put the keys in the mail and say, that's the end of my liability. Mm. And that did happen in the US. And when it happens, the banks then put those properties back on the market, which which just accentuated the plunge in property prices at the time. So Australians who got loans, for the most part, did have jobs, did have income. Maybe they should have been principal and interest. Uh, they're, they're being pushed into that, uh, that direction. And that's going to add to, I guess, some of the weakness we're seeing in prices at the moment. But it's the weakness in lending standards, the problems in the run-up, in the boom, were nowhere near as intense as they were in the US or Europe mm. um, and parts of Europe or Ireland. So I, I, I can't see a 40% collapse. Anyway, I, I think you'd get a 40% collapse is if the Reserve Bank went crazy and suddenly started jacking up interest rates dramatically. Mm. That's very unlikely. You know, the Reserve Bank is not stupid. They're actually quite astute. <laughs> they're mm. going to be doing that. Um, if anything, I think they'll be cutting interest rates. Um, the other thing would be, well, if unemployment took off, you know, we yeah. saw a sudden surge in unemployment. But again, that seems unlikely. I think the jobs market might slow down a bit after the very, the very strong jobs numbers we saw over the last couple of years. But it, I, I can't see a, a crash in labour market. So therefore, it's unlikely that people are going to be defaulting on their loans in mass. Yes, they'll be feeling depressed as mm. the value of the price goes down, they might spend less, but that doesn't mean they're going to be defaulting on their loans, um, which is what made it so bad in Ireland and the US. Yep. Uh, so unless we can see much higher unemployment or much higher interest rates, both of which I think are, are unlikely, they're a risk, but uh, particularly in unemployment, but I think they're unlikely. Mm. Uh, therefore, I think the, the falls... Um, we're looking at uh, what I've, I've been talking about, you know, 20% top to bottom in Sydney and Melbourne. It could be a little bit more, but I don't think it's going to be 40%. Mm, yep. And the thing is this, what I, I tried to point out in a civilised kind of way was all those countries you're talking about, they all had serious recessions, and that's your reference to unemployment. If we end up with a serious recession, maybe some places will fall by 40%. But even then, uh, we had a recession in uh, 1990, uh, 91, and real estate prices didn't fall much at all, did they? No, they came down, but it wasn't 40%. Yeah. <laughs> no, like I mean, to get 40%, you, you have to default on your loan. That's the first thing. And, and properties need to be taken over by the banks and turfed back and put back into the property market with forced sales. Yeah. You really need forced sales. And I think that's unlikely. I, I can, there are risks there, and that's why probably a bit more negative on the city Melbourne property markets than other economists, yep. or most mainstream economists are. Um, you know, there's a big investor base there. They, they're, they're, some of them are going to try and get out and so on. But I just don't think 
the deterioration of lending standards in Australia was anywhere near the situation we saw in Ireland and the US, and I, I don't see an, a, a recession here. Okay. Now, one last thing. You've already mentioned you, know, you think the next move in interest rates will be down. I'm looking at the stock market, um, Shane, and this is one seems my best case scenario. A Trump trade deal happens. The US Fed doesn't raise interest rates rapidly, so it shows patience. Uh, there's an okay uh, US uh, company profits period coming up. Wall Street you know, starts trending up, not necessarily as exuberantly as it did in the past. Our local stock market gets on the you know, uptrend, probably um, affected by the Royal Commission recommendations, the government's response, Labor's response, and then the election. But after all that stuff gets out of the way, we might see our market kick up a little bit more in the second half of 2019. How unrealistic is that best-case scenario? That sounds reasonable to me. It's not that different to what I'm thinking. I, I, I don't know where the market's at bottom. You know, we could have a retest. This is the way markets often work. Yep. Uh, so we could you know, still have a bit of volatility after we get past the Christmas New Year cheer that's helped markets in the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and of course, that that would then come with a lot of doom. You know, you, maybe it's uncertainty about um, trade. Maybe it's uh, soft GDP numbers in the US in the March quarter, um, or whatever. Um, but I do think, as you say, there will be a solution on trade that will be announced at some point in the next few months. Otherwise, Trump's going to start worrying about whether he gets re-elected next yep, year. Exactly. Um, there will be a pause by the Fed. There will probably be more stimulus coming out of China. Probably more stimulus coming out of Europe. Uh, investors will start to realise, well, we're not going into recession after all. Markets have overreacted. And then we'll start to see a rally, which will take our market up with it into year end, at least getting us back to the 6,000 level or something like that. Mm. Um, and, and a simple comparison, which if, if I'm right in the Reserve Bank cuts interest rates at some point, that will take the cash rate down to 1%. Bank uh, turn deposit rates will sort of in some cases, they'll go below 2%. Um, now, if you think about the share market at the moment, it's offering a dividend yield on average of just below 5%. When I looked on Friday, it was about 4.8, 4.9, 4.8, 4 4.9. If you add in the franking credits, that gets you uh, close to around 6.5%. Now, I know there might be issues if there's a Labor government with franking credits for some self-funded retirees. But for 90% of investors, that they won't be affected by that. So they'll be facing a, a bank term deposit rate of 2% or less. Uh, and uh, franking or dividends franked up with franking credits around 6.5%, uh, which is quite an attractive um, comparison, uh, particularly if investors start to conclude, well, the world's not going to go into recession, Australia's not going to go into recession all of which I think is consistent with your scenario. You can debate about the, the next few months. Mm. You know, I, as I said, I can't rule out a, uh, a retest of the lows we saw uh, in the US on Christmas Eve. You know, it didn't do much for Christmas, did it? No, it did <laughs> not. It really for did people that. like you and me. <laughs> yeah, well, it felt kind of depressing. Mm. Um, but at least it uh, started to pick up a bit thereafter. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I, I can't rule out a retest of those lows. That's the way markets often operate. But uh, I do think we'll end the year higher than we are at the moment. Well, Shane Oliver, I've loved um, sharing your economic crystal ball. It pretty well agrees with m most of my scenarios. And I like people who are smart and who agree with me. So thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure, Peter.
That was Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. I'm Peter Switzer. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And I look forward to catching up with you next week.